You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Case 4. Cadbury Brothers and Cadbury. For many, the early hours of 19 January 2010 marked the end of an era, the end of Cadbury's 186 years of independence, as it accepted the $21.8 billion takeover from American food giant Kraft. A few days later, Todd Stitzer resigned as chief executive and made a telling statement. He said, I spent 27 years of my life at this company. I absolutely love what it stands for and what it has done. The whole idea that doing good is good for business, the intersection of principled capitalism and commercial and financial performance is what drives people at this company. They actually believe that not only are they great confectionery marketers or sellers or manufacturers, but that it means something because the Cadbury Cocoa Partnership is investing in underdeveloped farming areas or because the chocolates have been certified by fair trade. Stitzer's statements speak volumes about the legacy built up by Cadbury over nearly 200 years and hints at more widely expressed fears that the takeover may sound the death knell for the very family values that came to define the company. The business that Cadbury became, with annual sales in excess of $8 billion from operations in 60 countries, with 45,000 employees and with some of the world's most recognized brands, from dairy milk chocolate, flake, cream eggs, to clarets, stimmerol and halls, all is a far cry from where it all started. The story begins in Victorian England when John Cadbury, one of Richard Tapper Cadbury's ten children, opened his first shop in 1824 in Birmingham, alongside his father's drapery and silk business. Cadbury's store sold tea, coffee, hops, mustard and the luxury commodities of cocoa and drinking chocolate, which he prepared by grinding cocoa beans from South and Central America and the West Indies using a mortar and pestle. Although cocoa and drinking chocolate had been available in England since the 1650s, the price tag ensured that they remained the preserve of Britain's elite. Within this niche market, John Cadbury's product experimentation and flair for promotion ensured that his business flourished. His first advertisement, placed in the Birmingham Gazette, stated that John Cadbury is desirous of introducing to particular notice Cocoa Nibs, prepared by himself, an article affording a most nutritious beverage for breakfast. In 1831, he opened his first factory and by 1842 was selling 16 lines of drinking chocolate and cocoa in cake and powder forms. Not that we would have recognised those products by today's standards. For a start, they were sold in blocks, a little of which had to be scraped into a cup or saucepan and mixed with hot milk or water. More significantly, however, cocoa and drinking chocolate were balanced with potato starch and sago flour to counter the high cocoa butter content, with any number of other healthy ingredients added for good measure. John Cadbury's son, George, later described the drinking chocolate as a comforting gruel. 
Nevertheless, business continued to prosper, not least due to the reduction in taxes on imported cocoa beans in the mid-1850s, introduced by Prime Minister William Gladstone. Cocoa and drinking chocolate was now within reach of the mass public. At the same time, Cadbury received a royal warrant as manufacturers of cocoa and chocolate to Queen Victoria. Despite his early commercial success, Cadbury was not all about business. He grew up in the tradition of the Society of Friends, or Quakers, a non-conformist religious group formed in the 17th century. The Quakers became known in rapidly industrialising Britain for using business to achieve social aims, such as reducing poverty, tackling injustice, improving working conditions and encouraging temperance, in other words abstinence or reduced dependence on alcohol. Cadbury was one of these conscience-driven business pioneers alongside fellow Quakers like Joseph Roundtree, Samuel Tuke and Joseph Fry. In fact, many well-known organisations reportedly owe a seminal influence to the Quakers, including Amnesty International, Barclays Bank, CARS, Cornell University, Friends Provident, Greenpeace, Oxfam and Sony. As a member of the Temperance Society, one of Cadbury's primary motivations for selling tea, coffee and hot chocolate was to provide a mass-market alternative to alcohol, which was widely regarded as an exacerbating factor in poverty and deprivation among the working classes. Cadbury also led a campaign to ban the use of child labour for sweeping chimneys and set up the Animals Friend Society, a forerunner of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or RSPCA. After retiring in 1861 due to ill health, Cadbury spent much of the remaining third of his life dedicated to civic and social work in Birmingham. However, his legacy did not end there. Many of his social reform ideas were taken up and extended by his sons, Richard and George, when they took over the business aged 25 and 21. In their first few years, the business nearly went under. In the end, however, a combination of technological changes and product innovation saved them. After visiting a competitor's factory, the Van Houtens in the Netherlands, they introduced a new cocoa press that removed cocoa butter from the beans, leaving a more palatable essence that became the drinking chocolate we know today. The excess cocoa butter after pressing was made into eating chocolate, which soon became Cadbury's flagship product, dairy milk chocolate. The Cadbury brothers are credited with introducing many of England's most progressive workplace practices. One of their most significant actions was to move their factory in 1879 from the grimy city of Birmingham to Bourneville in the English countryside to create what they called a factory in a garden. There they provided workers with numerous facilities that exceeded Victorian standards of the day, including heated dressing rooms, kitchens, gardens, sports fields and swimming pools. The company even organised leisure outings and summer camps for employees. Working conditions were also progressive. Cadbury was the first company in England to introduce the five-and-a-half-day working week. They were also pioneers in providing medical and dental facilities, offering a pension scheme and shutting the factory on bank holidays. Initially they provided houses for senior staff only, but George Cadbury's vision soon grew more ambitious. He said, 
If each man could have his own house, a large garden to cultivate, and healthy surroundings, then there will be for them a better opportunity of a happy family life. And so the Bourneville Village Project was conceived. 120 acres of land near the factory was acquired in 1895 and houses built for Cadbury's workers and others in the area. The motivation was not only to provide affordable, convenient accommodation for employees, but also to prevent any less sensitive developers from acquiring the land and creating an urban sprawl. In 1900, Cadbury handed over the land and houses to a trust which still administers the real estate, separate from the company, but with Cadbury's managers as trustees. Reforms continued throughout the 20th century under the leadership of the Cadbury brothers and successive generations of the family. In 1905, works committees were set up to deal with matters affecting employees, which became democratically elected works councils in 1918. These councils had equal representation from management and workers and focused on working conditions, health, safety, education, training and social activities for employees. In 1969, the councils were unionised and the tradition of employee participation in labour relations continues to this day. Not surprisingly, given their progressive track record on workplace issues, Cadbury also played a key role in addressing the issues of fair trade and supply chain ethics. As far back as 1905, the Cadbury brothers stopped buying cocoa from Sao Tome because of poor labour conditions. As a result, they helped found the cocoa industry in Ghana. A hundred years later, Cadbury launched its first fair trade label chocolate, which was the culmination of a whole raft of responsible supply chain management initiatives, including the Cadbury Cocoa Partnership, addressing child labour in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil, the International Cocoa Initiative, and the Better Sugar Cane Initiative. Through these and various internal programs, Cadbury set itself a 2010 target of sustainably sourcing at least 50% of their key agricultural raw materials, such as cocoa, sugar, mint, palm oil, gum arabic, licorice, hazelnuts, almonds and raisins. They also required all 3,000 key suppliers to acknowledge the Cadbury's human rights and ethical trading policy and to register on the Supplier Ethical Data Exchange Network, a non-profit organisation that uses the latest technology to enable companies to maintain and share data on labour practices in the supply chain. Prior to their takeover by Kraft, Cadbury's policy was just one of 19 corporate policies covering various aspects of responsible business, from environment, health and safety, to marketing, ethics and stakeholder engagement. Beyond these internal commitments, Cadbury also made very public commitments to responsibility, for example as a signatory to the Courthold Agreement, to RAP, or Waste and Resources Action Programme, the UN Millennium Development Goals via the Business Call to Action and the UN Global Compact. Cadbury's regularly assessed their performance across all of these numerous programs by allowing themselves to be rated on Business in the Community's Corporate Responsibility Index, as well as the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, the FTSE for Good Index, and the Carbon Disclosure Project's Climate Change Leadership Index. They also used the Global Reporting Initiative's G3 Sustainability Reporting Guidelines to produce annual corporate responsibility and sustainability reports.
In the last of these reports, in 2007-2008, after consulting with over 400 different stakeholders, they concluded that the issues of most concern, with high potential impact on the company and high societal and investor interest, included food safety, health, including nutrition and obesity, financial performance, environmental impacts, and sustainable sourcing, plus 10 other issues rated lower. Responding to the health issue, Cadbury introduced the 12-point Nutrition Action Plan in 2004 and a no-genetically-modified-organisms policy in Europe. Elsewhere, they were guided by the customer and clearly labelled whether products contained GMOs. In response to environmental concerns, Cadbury bought Green and Blacks, an organic chocolate company, in 2005 and launched a Purple Goes Green initiative in 2007, with delivery tracks across six dimensions, including energy, packaging, water, transport, waste, effluent and hazardous materials. All of these are just a sample of the social, environmental and ethical governance initiatives that are described in their 100-plus page Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability Report. I expect that John Cadbury and all the generations of Cadburys that succeeded him would have been justifiably proud of how the company turned out, and especially how its successive leaders and employees took a legacy of Quaker-inspired values and built a multinational company with one of the most recognised and trusted brands in the world. No wonder there was more than a hint of pride and sadness in CEO Todd Stittler's parting words. He might have quoted W.B. Yeats as he handed over the keys to Kraft, who said... I've spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams.